Basically, if you're screwed, if you lose your job, like pretty soon, you're a member of the working class, which is most people. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. In the first episode of the Class Matters Podcast, Adolf Reed Jr., Gordon Lafer, and Samir Santi define the working class and discuss the eroding trust in government among workers in the United States. So there is, you know, a lot of Ethiopian immigrants that work here in the D.C. area. No African-Americans to movies and like, you know, other things from back home. And so when they come here and, you know, start working with uh, the group, they have this understanding of like how African-Americans are like, they're outspoken. They're not afraid. They're not afraid of management. They're not afraid of authority. In the third episode of Black Work Talk Season 2, co-hosts Stephen Pitts and Bill Fletcher talk with Bert Bayou, D.C. Chapter Director of African Communities Together and Vice President of Unite Here Local 23. There was an event at the library and the museum put on together early November to celebrate the anniversary to say the library and museum called it Crash the Carnegie's. And we were like, well, that sounds like an invitation. In August of 2019, 300 workers across 19 branches of the historic Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh voted enthusiastically to join the United Steelworkers Union. Earlier this month, they officially became members as they ratified their first agreement. On the latest episode of Solidarity Works, two library workers talk about their monumental organizing campaign and about their roles as pillars of the community. It's tough. You become, you do become loyal, even if you have strikes. You sure, you for that short span, you hate everybody at that time. But then you go back and you learn to work together again. Mario Cervantes, a skilled factory worker who makes the tools to make the planes for a Boeing aircraft in Wichita, Kansas, is interviewed by Brianna O'Higgins for the latest season of the America Works podcast. Shortly before this interview, Boeing, which had been a community mainstay for decades, announced it was permanently closing all its factories, offices, and facilities in Wichita. Cervantes talks about his family's connection to Boeing, his pride in his trade, and his pride in working for Boeing. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on today's selection of highlights from the nearly 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. If you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, you'll find links to the entire programs in our show notes. And of course, you can find all 150 shows on our website at laborradionetwork.org. Here's the show. Welcome to Class Matters, the podcast where we ask the question, what would our country look like if it were governed by and for the working class? In our first episode, Adolf Reed Jr., Gordon Lafer, and Samir Santi discuss a topic that seems to be popping up more and more frequently in the news, the eroding trust in government among workers in the United States. Class Matters is a project of the Debs Jones Douglas Institute, which works to promote a government and an economy that works for working people. I'm Catherine Isaac, Executive Director. Adolph Reed Jr. has been involved in working class politics for more than half a century. Also joining us is Gordon Lafer, 
whose union activism includes running a hotel workers campaign with Local 142 of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union in Hawaii. We're also joined by Samir Santi, who has worked as a political organizer for the Pennsylvania Association of Staff, Nurses, and Allied Professionals, and as a researcher for Unite Here, which represents hospitality workers in the U.S. and Canada. Let's talk about what we mean by working class. Who does that include? Adolf, what's your definition of the working class? For me, the working class is everybody who has to or is expected to work for a living. Right. You know, that is people who don't live off investments or trust funds or whatever. And you know, the large mass of people whose main experience of life is having to go to a job someplace or to find one if they don't have it. Right. And of course, you know, we can specify that some more and talk about questions like who supervises who or what supervision means and so forth and so on. You know, since the end of World War II, if not before, elite organs of public opinion or knowledge shaping or whatever, you know, from the universities to the newspapers have tried to make class and political economy and the working class invisible, right? So we find ourselves all kind of lumped together in this amorphous foolishness called the middle class. On the refining side, I agree with what Adolf said, but if we're thinking about this in relation to the first question, if we're thinking about this as, okay, if there's a political organizing project, who is the population that we're trying to move, then I would take out some chunk of like the professional and managerial class. And I think those are people whose experiences, the government and the system is working okay for them. They might not feel like they rely on government, but, you know, the people who are saying now, You know, we're in a crisis of democracy because people in the right wing base no longer have respect for institutions like the courts and the rule of law and stuff like that. I think, yeah, a lot of people's experience is all of those institutions are cooked for people at the top. But people in, I don't know if it's the top 10 percent, 20 percent, something like that, those institutions work. And so I think that when we think about who are we organizing, I would not include those managerial and professional people. Yeah, I think that all sounds right. And I mean, I think one way I just again, in the spirit of refinement, and this may account for some of you know Gordon's point here as well, is that I think it's basically if you're screwed, if you lose your job, like pretty soon, you're a member of the working class, which is most people, you know, a certain there are some people who make they don't have enormous family wealth, but they make enough money that they could lose their job, weather it out, probably get a new one pretty easily. Yeah, maybe they don't fit in the mold. But most of us and most people, if you lose your job, you're screwed pretty soon. You know, maybe you've got enough savings to last a little while longer than the next person, but not that much longer. So the dependence, the dependence on a job is, I think, sort of the defining feature of this. And that's you know, gets back to Adolf's point, which is really, yeah, if, you, if you're expected to go to work for a living and you can't really handle an extended bout of unemployment, which is, again, most people alive today, then you're a member of the working class. And I think that, I mean, the point of this, I think this discussion is to just sort of unsettle the idea of the middle class. For so long, this, I, this idea of the middle, like what is the middle class? Who's middle class? Maybe that term made sense, 30 years ago, you know, if you had a house in the suburbs with a picket fence. But I mean, how many people these days are able to access that? And I think Gordon really touched on this. First, there are different worldviews that have to do with how one sees politics and and what one sees the stakes of politics. Right. So like I mentioned at one point that, you know, back in the Watergate era, polls showed that working people didn't really care about Watergate. And they didn't care about it, not because they were cynical, but because they just knew that's what politicians do. And that didn't really address 
know, their direct concerns about politics. And like our experience in South Carolina a number of years ago kind of underscored that people, so even operating in a context in which there are attempts to sort of press, you know, what used to be called hot button issues, like, you know, same-sex marriage, abortion rights, flying a Confederate flag. I don't think we ever encountered any working person who asked us about our positions on those questions because we were upfront about addressing concerns with jobs, healthcare, housing, and education. And one of the problems here is that we've got a bipartisan politics on which like both the major parties have been fundamentally committed to shifting you know, the plane of political debate away from what working people actually need to some other stuff. And I know that may be a little um, simplistic as a way to put it, but to some extent, you know, we can say, and this kind of helps us to think about what, the question of what to do with the professional and the managerial strata. And as Samir noted, they're a big, wide stratum. And I'm the kind of social scientist who would say that the way that we can tell which way the professional managerial stratum is going to go in its politics is to see which people in it you know, tend to agree with a working class program. And those who tend to agree with the working class program are on our side, and those who don't are on the other side. On that note, let's talk about what a working class program would look like. Well, yeah, I think it's the basic stuff, right? I mean, um, the right to a job and a living wage, and I mean, a meaningful wage, right? I mean, economic security, right? Access to health care and to other public goods like education, postal service, without constraint by ability to pay. You know, there's, there's just a bundle of attributes that you know, we think that are necessary for everyone to have access to, you know, to participate fully and decently and to be a member of the society. Thank you, Adolf Reed Jr., Gordon Lafer, and Samir Santi for this important discussion. You've been listening to Class Matters Podcast. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and support us on Patreon. Before we go, I'd like to give a special thanks to our editor, Jimmy Wirt, And for production work, a big thanks to Kate Summers. And thank you for listening to Class Matters. Hi, folks. This is Stephen Pitts, co-host of Black War Talks. I'm here with my good friend, co-host Bill Fletcher. Bill, how you doing, man? Not too bad, man. We have a little bit of bad weather here, but otherwise, uh, you know, hanging in. That means no bad weather or just cold, wet, well, bad weather? it was raining a lot. It was supposed to be some snow, and I've got my fingers crossed that the snow doesn't come. Okay, well, here in the Bay Area, we don't see snow. They did close the mountains about a couple months ago, but right now we're pretty good. So, Bert, welcome to the show. I'm glad you're here. How you doing? Hi, Stephen. Thank you. So, so Bert has um, multiple hats. Like, you're the hardest working man in show business, Bert. You're both chapter director of the Akron community together, and you're chapter president of United Here Local 23. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Um, I'm the chapter director for African Communities Together for the D.C. area, mm-hmm. and I'm also uh, vice president of United Local 23. United Local 23 is uh, it's not a local in one city. It's actually in um, over 10 different states in the South, including D.C. D.C. is just one chapter, but uh, I'm the vice president for the local. Yes, so I have two jobs. <laughs> okay. And when do you sleep and eat, man? Uh, 
<laughs> Whatever I can. <laughs> okay. Well, good luck with that, man. But um, I mean, I know a little bit about a African communities together. I know your co-founder, Amha Kassa, fairly well when he's out here. But for a lot of people in the audience, we know nothing about that. So tell me a bit about the organization, okay? Sure. Uh, so African Communities Together is an African immigrant organization. It was founded back in 2012, as you said, by Amaha Kassa, an Ethiopian immigrant. So the first office was chartered in uh, New York. The majority of the membership in New York is in West Africans. In 2016, a small chapter was started in the Washington, D.C. area, providing Communities uh, organizing support in you know, for labor uh, unions, Unite Here and uh, SEIU 32BJ on the hotel organizing work, and also providing free immigration legal services for African immigrants. So that's how it started. But uh, since then, it has grown and have so many programs that now we're running in Washington, D.C. So ACT has now two chapters. We're working towards uh, opening another chapter in uh, Philadelphia very soon. Oh, cool. Very cool. Bert, the relationship between um, U.S. African-Americans and African immigrants over the years has been complicated. There are assumptions that both sides make, and I'm talking about going way back to like when Cape Verdeans first came to the United States in the 19th century, but uh, but more recently in the post 1965 period, with an uptake in um, in immigration from Africa, the relationship has been complicated. Um, how does that? How does your organization look at that challenge? And and um, yeah, how does it look at that challenge? I think you know. I want to understand the question. Better. So, how 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 would you describe when you say it's complicated? In what ways? Well, for example, frequently African Americans feel that African immigrants look down on U.S. African Americans, don't really understand race here, and African immigrants uh, sometimes feel that U.S. African Americans are hostile, unwelcoming, and and so there's like this sort of clash that happens at different points. And, and that's what I mean. Like, how do, have you seen this play out? And, and how do you see the relationship between African immigrants and U.S. African Americans? I've been in the labor union for 15 years uh, in the D.C. area. Most of the org workers that we organize are African immigrants from Ethiopia, African Americans, and... Uh, Latin American immigrants. So those, these are the, the, you know, the biggest three groups in our membership. Yes, you are right. There is, uh, there is a tendency for this group of workers to stick to their own groups, you know, in the workplaces. Like it's true. Like if you walk into a break room, uh, in a hotel or other workplaces where employees sit down for lunch, like, there's the African stable, there's the, uh, you know, Latin American stable or black African, I mean, black American stable. So there's that, you know, sticking to your, sticking to the group thing. But, you know, I don't know about non-union locations, but in the union workplaces, organizing always starts by identifying groups, uh, finding, you know, the group leaders from this uh, 
from these various groups and like bringing them together into the organizing so that, you know, the leaders can work together to organize their, you know, coworkers into a fight. So there is, you know, a lot of, uh, Ethiopian immigrants that we work here in the DC area, know African-Americans through movies and like, you know, other things from back home. And so when they come here and, you know, start working with uh, the group, they have this understanding of like how African-Americans are like, they're outspoken. They're not afraid. They're not afraid of management. They're not afraid of authority, so to say. I think, you know, vice versa, like, you know, sometimes African-Americans, when they don't know, when they haven't worked with Africans themselves, probably think, you know, see them as, you know, immigrants that don't know much of the culture or much about the U.S. And there is this misconception, I would say, between the two groups. But I think, you know, it's exaggerated because as as they start working together, actually uh, Africans and African-Americans work together well than other, you know, than other groups. Um, a lot of Africans um, identify or, you know, see themselves trying to find their identity here in the U.S. through African-Americans. And that's as, as in African immigrants, you know, live here for a year or two or three and then understand the system, how, you know, how the U.S. is, then they try to see themselves more as African Americans, like identify as an African American than any other group. So to be honest, like I haven't seen much of what you say that the, on the jobs that we organize. I'm really glad you came on the show. And this is, um, the first of many conversations. I'm truly excited about what you're doing. I'm glad to meet you, man. And I'm glad to hear about your work and, um, to be continued, man. You take care, okay? All right. Thank you, Steve. I really appreciate it for having a chance to have this conversation with you and Bill. Thanks a lot, Bert. On August 14th, 2019, just months before the COVID-19 pandemic would begin, 300 workers across 19 branches of the historic Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh voted enthusiastically to join the United Steelworkers Union. A children's librarian at the downtown and business branch noted that she was proud of her co-workers for utilizing their right to organize and was looking forward to negotiating their first contract. Many of her colleagues took to social media as well to share in the excitement about this next chapter of their lives. Kira Yaversky started working at the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh in the fall of 2011 as a page, with most of her work involving shelving books. At the time, Allegheny County voters had just decided to begin allotting the library system tax money. Library branch hours were extended, and Kira was promoted to a clerk. For the past decade, she has helped library users check out books and find community resources. She and others across the library branches also help run a nonprofit resource center, offer career counseling, host book readings for kids and young adults, and much more. Through this work, Kira has done a little bit of everything, but at the end of the day, her job is centered around people more than books, a common misconception many folks have about her world. The goal at the end of the day is people should come in, 
be able to use the space, be able to get help with what they need. And for a lot of people, we're like the place where you can print something because a lot of people don't have printers at home or maybe you don't even have a computer and know how to use it. It's a lot of tech help. It's a lot of helping people find community resources, a lot of gaps in where social service is available. People are told, oh, go to the library. They can help you. And it's not always things that we can completely help with, but we can usually at least steer people in the right direction or connect them to some other, you know, resource that's available. So we're definitely a lot more than books. And it's one of the big things that we're trying to get the word out about because you can have a lot of a lot available for people. When Kira first heard about the organizing campaign in the spring of 2019, she considered herself a novice in terms of union knowledge. But she still knew the idea of having more power alongside her colleagues was a good idea. Of course, the first thing that happened, once she and others began connecting with coworkers at other branches, was not surprising. You know, the more you talk to people, the more you realize that things that have happened at your workplace are like, oh, maybe that's not supposed to happen. Like, maybe that was handled badly. Or you hear about other things where it's, oh, that manager did that? That's horrifying. Just having chances to talk to each other outside of our normal workplace kind of constraints. Because as a clerk, I had not very many opportunities to talk to people who didn't work in my branch. I'm starting to hear more what's happening throughout the Carnegie Library locations um, and that, that maybe there were some things that needed to change and that a union was a way that we could start changing them. We've had some We've had some fun things too, not like we have to, not as focused on we have to get this contract, whatever, but like on Labor Day, we had a picnic outside. We got to have, we, there was an event that the library and the museums put on together early November to celebrate the anniversary that they, the library and museum called it Crash the Carnegies. And we were like, well, that sounds like an invitation. So we actually did a joint action with the library and museum workers that we picked a little corner of the, the lawn in front of the library and we just did our own little thing and but it's been good to have some opportunities like that and then mixing in with that just constantly talking to our coworkers like what's going on how can we help each other just having ways to communicate with each other up with the workers' ongoing campaign at the Carnegie Museums, visit www.umwpgh.org. Until next time, take care, stay safe, and keep showing up, siblings. From the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to America Works, interviews with contemporary workers throughout the United States, collected by the library's American Folklife Center as part of its Occupational Folklife Project. This is AFC staff folklorist Nancy Gross. 
And this America Worked podcast features excerpts from a longer interview with senior plaster pattern maker Mario Cervantes, a skilled factory worker who makes the tools that make the planes for Boeing aircraft in Wichita, Kansas. Mr. Cervantes was interviewed by Brianna O'Higgins on behalf of the Kansas Humanities Council as part of an Archie Green Fellowship from the American Folklife Center to document Boeing aircraft workers. Shortly before this interview took place, Boeing, which had been a community mainstay for decades, announced it was permanently closing all its factories, offices, and facilities in Wichita. My father worked there, of course, and he knew that there was a position opening up in the uh, tooling department, plaster pattern maker. And boy, I just went every day, put my application in when they used to have a, when they had a physical HR where you could do that. But it was like every day I'd go and check on my rec record or my resume and all that. And finally they got tired of looking at me and interviewed me and set me up in tooling classes and took eight weeks of tooling classes and ended up a pattern maker. I was 19. And actually, I think at that time, I don't want to say it was a quota, but being a minority might have helped me a little bit because tooling was predominantly, what I want to say, Anglo, probably. So getting minorities at that time into those positions were something that I think the government made them do, probably. Yeah. You mentioned what you were doing a little bit, but what was your job title? Plaster pattern maker. And, and what did And you? what we did was tool up, make tools that actually made parts for the planes. Uh, and at that time, they did every detail inside house. There were no vendors or anything, so the work was, was a lot of work. But we tooled up for the 757, 767, so they could pull skins and all that kind of thing. What was it like experiencing strike for the first time? It was tough. I had three small children at the time. I've been through two strikes and long strikes, both in 89 and 95, and it's no fun. But you know what? I brought my kids onto the strike line with me and my wife, so they knew why Dad wasn't bringing home a check, they, so they knew what was going on. So it's just been something in my blood that, although nobody wins probably in a strike, is that the result is you're hopefully maybe not only have better benefits and salary, but safer workplace for everybody, kind of justice in the workplace. The strikes are no fun, but it's something that you have to do from time to time. I'm a Boeing employee, and I'm proud to be a Boeing employee. When I would see Sunday morning in the commercials about the defense, you know, what we're protecting America, and that's Boeing. It's a sense of pride that we're helping out. It might be a little piece. We're all, as Boeing employees, at the end result of providing these great products to keep America safe, to have America. So, yeah, it's a loyalty that, like I say, you spend more waking hours with those folks out there than you do your own family. So you create bonds, and one big bond was with the Boeing company. Like I say, I was proud every morning to cross that gate. The airplanes you worked on were really leading-edge technology, 757, 767. How did the impact of technology... Uh, on the new airplanes impact the union? Oh, it did because they don't need as many workers with the to build a plane. We used to see plant two, and there used to be a lot more rivet pounders now, but through automation, they've gone to machines, computers all set up and that are doing a lot of the riveting now. Yeah, we've seen a lot of change out there where we don't need a big one as we used to back in the day. Even my work, the plaster pattern work, they don't do it that way anymore. I'm like a dinosaur now. It's all done on a digital, it's all computerized now, so we don't need to set up any mocks and sweep in a 41 section as big as the house, and so everything's done on computer. So yeah, I've seen a lot of change out there.
a lot of change. Mm -hmm. When Boeing announced that they would be withdrawing completely, what was your reaction? When you well, I was pretty shocked. And then you wonder, boy, what about me? What happens to me? And I'm not at that age yet uh, where I can retire. I've got a couple more years, so I'm hoping I'm going to sneak that in before they shut the doors. I'm, in fact, I'm actually, I hope I'm the one that turns the lights out and shuts the door, but I'm not sure that's going to happen, though. But it's devastating. It's like losing a family member, really. For one, I never thought they'd sell. Boeing's provided a very good living for me. I've raised three wonderful children, and it's just, it's hard to see them go. It's tough. You become, you do become loyal, even if you have strikes. You sure, you for that short span, you kind of, you, you hate everybody at that time. But then you go back and you learn to work together again. We're striving to do, again, to make Boeing successful. This is folklorist Nancy Gross. On behalf of the American Folklife Center, and with a special thanks to AFC intern Neil Acosta for her help with this episode, thank you for listening to America Works. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Remember, we've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website at laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.